0: Hello, people of the revolution, and welcome to another episode of The Great Futures Podcast, where we discuss topics related to environmental justice, people's visions for what life could look like in a just world, and how we will achieve those visions. I'm your host, Gracelyn McClure, an undergraduate student studying environmental geosciences and sustainability studies at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. I'm also a climate justice advocate, and an organizer with Students for a Democratic Society. In this episode, we will be, we will be discussing environmental racism with Dr. Kate Derrickson. Enjoy. All right, so first, um, can you just introduce yourself, um, including name, pronouns if you're comfortable sharing, uh, what you do, and then anything else about yourself um, that you'd like to share?
1: Uh, sure. My name is Kate Derrickson. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. I'm a associate professor in geography at the University of Minnesota.
0: What else? What else were you asking? Um, okay. That's all. Uh, if you want to, if you want to share a little bit about um, what you're doing at the university. Um, that sure. Would be
1: great. So I, I um, have a couple hats as an associate professor. I teach in the geography program. Um, I'm also the director of urban studies and then I'm the co-director of the CREATE initiative. Um, CREATE is an effort to repurpose the research university to ask and answer questions uh, about environment, the environment and um environmental justice um from the perspective or that meet the needs and serve the interests of our community-based collaborators and uh that those are folks who are primarily um, based in historically marginalized communities or majority you know historically black neighborhoods um, and communities of color
0: great thank you um so first i just want to get to know a little bit of your what led you to this point. So uh, when and how did you get started with this work? Um, And if there was like a particular moment in time that activated you to get involved in environmental justice, um, I'd love to hear about that as well.
1: Let me think about this.
0: You know, I didn't really get involved
1: in environmental work on purpose. I got involved, I was interested in questions of racial justice and political economy and I was interested in um, kind of the way that different groups or different people were able to influence what happened in their communities and that is that really just, you know, the environmental change and environmental justice was just such a huge priority for the communities that I was working with that that's how I got involved. So maybe it seems obvious in retrospect, but when I was working uh, after Katrina, my my dissertation research was on post-Katrina redevelopment in Mississippi and, you know, the communities that I was working with really didn't have access to the resources to do the kind of research and analysis that they really wanted done around how will this watershed change how will my flooding risk change if this you know if the coast develops in this way or if the coast develops in that way and I was really there to research how they were influencing redevelopment after the storm but then it was just really clear to me that how you know, that was deeply intertwined with environmental questions and not environmental justice really in this, in, in terms of like proximity to pollution, which is how I had always thought about it, but really about flooding and flood risk and the mitigation of flood risk being something that was happening to protect majority white communities and the way that, you know, just like societally, we were managing flood, flood risk and environmental vulnerability um, and kind of distributing the risks disproportionately to communities of color. So that was something that I learned doing my dissertation research. And then when I moved, you know, one of my first jobs was at Georgia State and I started working with a community called the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance. Um, and there again flooding I mean this was kind of by accident I wasn't I didn't set out to study water and floods and vulnerability in historically black communities I set out to st- get like I said study how communities could in, I'm an urban geographer so I wanted to understand how do communities shape the future of the city but then environmental governance and our environment was so central to those questions, both in terms of how the things that they had to respond to, to shape the future of the city, but also in terms of the way that greening and climate adaptation and change, and things that we think of as positive changes, I was seeing were disproportionately benefiting white communities and being used as a rationale almost to gentrify um, communities of color and displace them. And so it was like, it just became clear to me over a decade of doing this community-engaged work that the environment was, and our our management and governance of it was kind of this double-edged sword where it was like communities of color were disproportionately subjected to the bad, outcomes of our bad management of the environment but then when we got our act together to manage it in good ways they still didn't benefit from that and that benefit those benefits disproportionately accrued to to white communities and so really create was the establishing the create initiative was about figuring out what can the research university do about that are there research problems i mean not everything's a knowledge problem some things are power problems but like are there knowledge problems that that researchers could ask different questions about different things or ask the re- ask the questions in different ways or use our resources differently to disrupt that pretty consistent pattern of environmental harms and disamenities, if that's a term, I don't even know if that's a word. Environmental harms and negative things disproportionately impacting communities of color and the benefits and of of a good environment disproportionately accruing the white community. So are there research problems or knowledge problems that can resource communities of color and their collaborators and their allies? To disrupt that, um, that kind of coupling is what creates
0: trying to figure out. That's a really great story of how you got involved. Um, Obviously unfortunate that it, that is how the United States is structured, but um, most of the other people that I've been interviewing for this podcast initially went in Mm. with an environmental science perspective and then uh found the social justice implications later so it's really interesting that you kind of went the opposite direction um so uh for the next question uh it's is there anyone or anything that inspires you either in your work um in your research uh, or in teaching uh, or in your everyday life? Um, Yeah, there are a lot of people who
1: inspire me. Um, I have a lot of collaborators that are based in these communities that I work with who do this work every day, even when it's like really uninteresting I mean sometimes the the work is like so hard and it's such a long scale and sometimes you have to do these like really mundane things like you know work on and support people in these really mundane ways like I don't know just meetings or or I don't know, just taking care of people in a kind of everyday way like because you're part of a community and that isn't like cool or flashy or you know something you can tweet about or um, something you get paid for or something that burnishes your reputation or makes you more likely to get funded or anything. There's no, it, there's nothing that you get from it. it. It's just people who live their principles every day and care for their community and think about how to position their community to better advocate for themselves, and to and to do the long, hard work of social change. And uh, those are the people that I admire—the ones who just continue to do the work, and 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 don't get any. Um, it's for no other reason than because they're committed to the work you know I think I have a very uncomfortable relationship to a lot of the work that I do because I get paid to do it and so everything I do even when it seems altruistic or it seems like ethical or moral or I'm doing the right thing or I do my research or I collaborate in these right and effective and and ethical deeply ethical ways you know I turn around and and write about that and publish my findings and give talks to people about what I do and and I get credit in my community and from my colleagues and and I get promotions and raises and you know I get benefits from from it, even if I don't always do everything in ways that are simply about, you know, my reputation. I don't, I don't do that, but I still benefit materially and in my in terms of my career. And a lot of the people that I work with, they just have other, they just have jobs of regular jobs they have to do. And then they do all of this stuff in addition to that. And of course I have things that I do in addition to my job. But the point is just that like those are the people who really inspire me, the ones who just keep living and living their principles every day and working on things that they're so committed to and taking the really long view, you know, of of the well-being of their community instead of you know, a lot of kind of quick, positive feedback or kind of material benefit or burnishing your reputation, things like that. I mean, I could list actual people, but I, but I, who I think of when I think of that, but really it's more of like a kind of person that I
0: admire. That's wonderful. Um, and it's, it's great to have those kinds of people. Um, So now we're gonna get into sort of the meat and potatoes um, of what I wanted to get your perspective on. Uh, So how do you envision a just future?
1: Um, You know, for me, a just future is one where everybody has the ability to meaningfully participate in shaping it. So, you know, I, somebody asked me a question once I had given this presentation about my kind of theory of uh, really theory heavy presentation about kind of what I think academic scholarship that's invested in social justice should look like. And the person, a person Asked me at the end, you know, like, what is this to you? Why I, I follow your argument, but I don't really understand why you're making it. Like, what do you? Why do? You, why are you making this argument? And it was all about how um, we need to be um, attentive to what I would call the social relations engendered in the act of knowing. So we have to be attentive to not just the kinds of things we know, but what happens when we when we try to know and what kinds of relationships of expertise we cultivate etc cetera, etc cetera. and i really didn't know the answer to the question that she was asking me i didn't i was like i don't really know how to answer it what is this to me so i spent a lot of time thinking about it and it really comes down to this at growing up i was <clears throat> A really, I wanted to be a lawyer. I really liked to argue, and I I have very strong opinions, and I really like telling everybody my very strong opinions. But I'm a overeducated middle class white woman, and I really I started to learn that by like that I was disproportionately um, resourced in my ability to argue and to state state my opinion, and I didn't think I didn't want that I couldn't show up into a room and just tell everybody this is how it is you know because <laughs> I realized that like that isn't a kind of that isn't conducive to social justice because I'm because of my how I'm situated and position and so then I was like well really what I want to do is I want to argue with people and I want to tell everybody what I think and I can't do that I I felt like I couldn't do that until everybody has the opportunity to do that. So I realized that in my lifetime, (laughs) I'm not going to see a world like that. But I realized that that's my horizon, that I want a future in which I could tell everybody exactly what I personally think about literally anything that occurred to me and not feel like in the process, I was drowning someone else out, that I was just one voice of equally positioned people and, and everybody could, you know, get into the rough and tumble of debate. And so, so for me that, and and it's not, I don't just mean discursive like debate, like, like, you know ideas. I mean, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to organize society? What should it look like? You know, I have really strong beliefs and opinions about the answer to those questions, but I'm just deeply aware of how um, situ- how, how narrow my worldview is. And so I want a world where everybody's worldview is maybe a little bit bigger and a little less narrow, but also where it's okay that everybody has narrow worldviews or their own subjective experience because they're similarly, similarly positioned to kind of push for what they want. And I just feel like if I go out into the world and push for what I personally want, uh, that, that that's an uh, un, uneven playing field And, and I don't want that. So I don't really know what a just future looks like, but I know what the conditions of a just future might be. And I, and I, I, I know what I would like, but I don't, I'm very aware that what I would like is, um, is so partial. And so, so to me, it's really about process and it's about, um, it's about process and power and how that's distributed um, more than it is about what the world is.
0: That was so eloquently said. Um, I really, I really liked that. Um, so you sort of uh, touched on this a little bit in your answer to the previous question, but. Um, what do you see as being the steps or the way that we will transition as a people to a future where everyone is able to have uh, their voice heard?
1: Um, well, I don't know um, on a societal level or on like a world scale, um, But I do know, uh, yeah, I I don't know the answer. I can't think of how to say anything really compelling, you know, really true at a kind of global scale. What I can say maybe is about um, the kind of sectors that we all work in and maybe the way that change could come to the sectors that we work in rather than like a global scale societal level change, which is to say, so, so I can think about um, in academia, um, I think really being reflexive and accountable to the work that our knowledge does in the world and being more clear about, why we're doing the things that we're doing and what happens when we do them is a first step. Um, and I, to kind of fomenting change. So I can apply this to academia. I, I, I knew that if I started thinking through it in terms of my, my work, it might, might generate other ideas. But so basically I think that if we do that in academia, I think that applies too to politics. So like, so much of the politics that I'm around. um, And this is I think about like left politics, or, you know, climate politics, and those kinds of things. To me, they don't really feel it. They don't often feel like they're about really changing anything. So much as they're about Seeming like someone who really wants something to change. <laughs> uh, and I would just worry about that. I worry about that, the proliferation of that um, in some sectors. And so I think that if people who were organizing, if people who were, you know, and I'm not, a, this is a straw man, of course, there are a lot of people who do do this. Um, but I think if organizers, activists, um, academics, uh, people working in institutions, like uh, environmental institutions and um, agencies, were just more clear and reflexive about the relationship between what they're doing and the change they want to see. I think that, like a lot of stuff would be different. So yeah, more reflexivity about the theory of change, I think is a first step to getting change um yeah I don't
0: know if that makes any sense but no that makes that makes perfect sense um you're good um so in in talking with a lot of other people um I've I've noticed that this question um tends to apply less to people who've been involved in this work for a really long time. So you can feel free to pass on this question um, if you feel that um, it doesn't really apply to you. Um, So just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, The question is, how has the pandemic changed your perspective on environmental justice issues um
1: I don't I'm not sure if it has
0: yeah I don't know um and that's totally fine like I said um I feel like it's a it it's a question that works better for the students that I've been talking to than the Mm -hmm. um professors and working adults
1: well i could say i could say one thing that i've noticed relate relative to that is that um i think that there is a connection between um young i think that young people in my observation i don't consider myself young um have been much more connected to the ethics of the pandemic than I think young people would have been when I, you know, in the 80s and 90s when I was young. And I'm talking about adolescents and young adults. So I think that might have something to do with the experience that young people have thinking about collective risk and vulnerability on a global scale as a result of their thinking about climate change and the fact that they've grown up in a changing climate and are intimately and personally invested in kind of global collective futures and shared vulnerabilities. And I think that they have been much more sophisticated than I think young people would have been in my time in terms of thinking about the simultaneity of personal responsibility and personal actions and systemic change. And I have observed that I do believe, I I think that comes from or my, my hypothesis is that that comes from, their thinking about climate change, as a as a generation. Um, so that would be one. So that has made me slightly more hopeful, in a sense that, in the sense that I think that this is a generation with um, a kind of experience in their bones that maybe previous generations don't have and I've seen that play out in the pandemic in terms of how I've seen young people respond to it so that would be one way
0: thank you um and the last question I have is how would you suggest that people and get involved in environmental or more broadly social work uh social justice work
1: well I think with humility is the first thought that I have Um, you know, from my vantage point and from the work that I do, um, especially young people, well, I'll say anyone who's deeply, deeply committed to questions around the environment and environmental futures, and have a se- people who have a sense of urgency and sometimes despair about our environmental futures can um, be so eager to address those that they can, um, unfortunately reproduce some harmful social dynamics in their um, fervor to mitigate negative environmental outcomes. And so I sometimes think like, why are we, why are we bothering to save the planet if it's going to be it's going to stay such an unjust planet and to me they're so intimately connected and I don't mean um in a kind of lip service way like you know a lot of times you hear people who talk about sustainability say some kind of like lip service like, oh, well, sustainable futures will be just futures just because they will. It, I don't I, I don't, buy that at all. Like I can imagine very environmentally sustainable futures that are deeply unjust. In fact, like I worry about eco-fascism all the time. So I don't think it's true that sustainable futures are necessarily just futures. I think we're gonna have to really, really struggle over making sure that A, we have sustainable futures and A, that we have just futures and that they align. And I think that that has to happen um, at the out, like that has to happen from like your core commitments. It can't be like, I'm very committed to X outcome in the environment plus equity or plus racial justice. I think that it has to come from like, that has to be the relation, that has to be the commitment from the outset. and I don't, I'm not saying that I'm, I like live this perfectly by any means. Um, I don't want it to come across. Like, I think I have all the answers or that I do this in my sleep or that I am the standard against which anyone should be measured. That's not what I'm saying, but I, I'm just saying that I think if you, if you, that that's, yeah, I'm just saying, I think that's what, um, that's what I would say to somebody who wanted to get involved in the work.
0: In a relatively recent episode of the Eggs podcast, hosted by Mikhail Loach and Josephine Becker, uh, titled White Supremacy: Healing and Futures, they interview Layla Saad, an author, speaker, and teacher. She said something that really resonated with me and called me back to this conversation with Dr. Derrickson when I heard it. When asked what future she envisions as the best or the most just, she responded, The way that I think about it is, I don't know what the world will look like. I don't know what the systems, the institutions will look like, but what I know is that I want for all black indigenous people of color to be able to feel like they are able to live in the full dignity of their humanity, that they are human beings just like every other person and for them to know it within themselves and for that to be reflected in how the world treats them. Just sit with that, so powerful. Um, Cannot recommend her book, um, titled Me and White Supremacy Enough, uh, I will absolutely be linking it in the show notes, so go check that out. Um, so I would like to talk a little bit about the quote-unquote economy argument, um, a lot of times you will hear the argument that because our economy is so fossil fuel dependent, we can't we can't transition away. Um, and that argument takes advantage of marginalized groups um, and continues the oppression and exploitation. Fossil fuel companies will continue to use the rhetoric that they are bringing economic stability and jobs to a region through the development of the industry. Often, they bring jobs to rural areas that do need revitalization. But more often than not, they over-exaggerate the benefits and choose to leave out the fact that most of the jobs are temporary, that the jobs are dangerous, that the company does not actually care about the people as they provide few benefits. to those who they employ. Take, for example, Enbridge, a multinational Canada-based oil corporation, claiming they are helping indigenous and rural communities in so-called Minnesota through the jobs they are supplying and the taxes they will be paying for the Line 3 replacement project, which is a whole other issue. Um, If you are interested in learning more about Line 3, uh, the Line 3 quote-unquote replacement project, it's not really a replacement, Go back to the episode with Mercedes Goal, where we talk about energy, um, and you can learn more about it there. But the thousands of jobs being created right now will be gone in a few months, as there are only about two dozen positions left after pipeline construction has completed. So why are we relying on a Canadian multinational corporation to boost the economy in in this state, in the United States, they take advantage of BIPOC and low-income communities to supply their workforce. So Dr. Kate Derrickson talks about how marginalized communities face disproportionate harms, um, especially Black, Indigenous communities in color, communities of color. especially in her research on Hurricane Katrina. So I just wanna talk about that a little bit more. Um, Communities of color are disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change and pollution. On the manifestations of environmental racism after Hurricane Katrina, George Lipsitz wrote in landscape journal in 2007, the organized abandonment The organized abandonment of poor and working class Black people, already affected by decades of disinvestment, deindustrialization, and defunding of public services, left them isolated in high poverty neighborhoods, especially vulnerable to the effects of flooding. Displaced residents of the 7th, 9th, and 13th wards should have the right to return, the right to rebuild, and the right to occupy and traverse urban space in their city. As a result of Hurricane Katrina, they stand to lose even more than the owners of mansions, luxury apartments, office buildings, and hotels, because working class blacks in New Orleans were resource poor, but network rich. The reconstitution of these networks and the spaces and social relations that nurtured and sustained them should be the first priority of any rebuilding effort. So that is just one example of environmental racism. Another example is um, talked about in Dumping in Dixie by Dr. Robert Bullard, which I cannot recommend enough. Um, It was written in the 1990s. um, However, is a super relevant work in that it was a watershed moment in environmental justice history. Um, It showed how um, citing for waste um, or choosing where a, uh, a landfill was going to be placed, uh, especially for hazardous materials, um, was disproportionately put in Black neighborhoods, um, even more so than low-income white communities. And it analyzed some of the reasons why that was the case. Um, and the most the most outstanding reason, um, and not outstanding in a good way, is because Black people have a have less access to power. They are unable to access the tools that white people um, are able to access to prevent uh, hazardous waste from being dumped in their neighborhoods. Um, It's a practice that continues to this day um, and contributes to environmental racism. So that's just another example, but there are plenty more. And I I would encourage you to look into some of those, um, and there will be resources in the show notes, as always. I just want to give a big thank you to Dr. Kate Derrickson for sharing your experiences, thoughts, time, and work with me for this project. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Great Futures Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed yourself. As always, I encourage you to look into some of the topics covered on your own, check out some local groups doing great environmental justice work, and get involved in whatever interests you. Listening to this podcast is a great starting point into the movement and larger conversations, which is why I give you so many resources to look into. Disclaimer, all the asides are based on my research and do not necessarily reflect that of the person I interviewed. All of my sources can be found in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.